From the Coindesk Global Macro News Desk, this is Borderless, a twice-monthly roundup of the most important stories impacting Bitcoin and the crypto sector around the world. It's created by Coindesk reporters Nick Day, Anna Badakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Nick Day. I'm Anna Baidakova. And I'm Danny Nelson. And today we're joined by our colleague Colin Harper, one of our tech reporters here at Coindesk. On today's show, Nigerians using Bitcoin to support victims of the police brutality. Chinese people get to try out the digital yuan. And the IMF talks crypto. More on that in the minutes to come. But first, Nigerian activists are protesting police brutality, using Bitcoin to raise funds for medical care, legal aid, and funeral assistance after being unable to use the country's traditional financial oils. Colin's been covering these efforts and is here to shed some light on how Bitcoin is being used in Nigeria. Colin, how's it going? Going good, Nick. Thanks for the introduction, man. Happy to be on. Glad you could join us. Just to kind of dive right into it, this group of protesters called the Feminist Coalition have been raising funds for a while to help finance the NSARS movement, which is a kind of widespread movement in Nigeria against police brutality, specifically the SARS task force, which the Nigerian government has promised to abolish. But the protests are still going on, uh, in part because they've had promises like this before, even as far back as 2015 from the government. And the Nigerian people are just fed up with it, right? And they don't really foresee any change coming. So the Feminist Coalition has been participating in these protests, paying for provisions, even legal counsel, hospital bills for protesters who have been caught in the crossfire of some of the police brutality. Recently, they had their bank account shut down and their access to Flutterwave, a payment processor they used for donations, also shuttered. So in, in response, they turned to Bitcoin uh, to kind of get some censorship-resistant fundraising going, starting first with an app called SendCash, which would convert Bitcoin directly to the Nigerian Naira and deposit that into their bank accounts. Unfortunately, that's tethered to the traditional banking system as well. So they stopped using SendCash and now are using BTC Pay server to process Bitcoin donations. And so far uh, in total, both Bitcoin and fiat donations before their bank accounts were shut down, they have raised 74 million Naira, which amounts to about uh, 200,000 USD. So when you say the traditional financial oils were shut down, is this a government or the local government trying to just prevent, you know, protesters from raising funds? Or was it the companies themselves thinking that there's too much risk here? Or what's the background? The banks and the payment processor never got back to us when we requested comment. And it's kind of iffy to say, right? They're never really given a good reason for these things. It's usually just like a boilerplate, like you have been in violation of our terms of service. We can no longer service you, right? One thing I do know one of the directors for Flutterwave sits on the board of one of the nation's uh, largest banks. You know, there's a lot of kind of crossover between these employees and government positions. So I, I think what it is, is ultimately, you know, the government contacts the bank and is like, hey, we can't be having this. You're letting this activity go on. You're letting them collect these funds. We need to stop this. So it's a little opaque, but I think there's definitely some cooperation between the private and the public sectors when they're shutting these things down. So one of the general aspects of Bitcoin is, you know, there's no real restriction. Anyone can buy it. Anyone can send it. 
where are we seeing donations come from? I know Jack Dorsey, you know, Twitter and Square CEO tweeted a link to it. Is it just a global effort to raise funds? Donations primarily coming from, you know, Nigeria, already coming from the US. Do you have any idea? I don't know for sure, Nick. So the thing about BTC Pay, especially, the payment processor creates a generates a new address with each donation. So every time you specifically go to a BTC Pay portal to pay someone, a new address for that wallet is generated. So it's really hard to kind of trace funds for these because each new send comes with a new address. So they're not like, you know, pulled together. And then blockchain analytics is not super easy with something like this. But, you know, given Jack Dorsey's tweet, given the Human Rights Foundation's tweet from Alex Gladstein, the director of the Human Rights Foundation. And I would also just say, given the fact that the majority of Bitcoin is held in either Europe or North America, I'd say a lot of it's probably coming from there. But it, it's kind of hard to tell, honestly, because, you know, it, it, it is public, obviously, but you never really know where the addresses are unless you're doing very serious blockchain analytics. And also BTC Pay doesn't store any information on that for its users. So the Feminist Coalition has no way to know. But people donate money in fiat currency or they have to send Bitcoin to donate. Yes, correct. And they can't send fiat anymore because all of those rails have been uh, derailed, so to speak. And then BTC server would help to convert crypto to fiat for receivers also? What's going on for the Feminist Coalition? And we've seen this elsewhere. This is very popular in Venezuela and Iran. Feminist Coalition is kind of going through peer-to-peer trading through crypto trading channels, whether that be on, you know, Telegram or some other messaging app, because, you know, before they could just use SendCash and SendCash would process donations directly from Coinbase or like Cash App. But if I sent my Bitcoin to SendCash, they would automatically liquidate it for the Feminist Coalition and then deposit the Naira in their bank account. Well, obviously, you can't really do that with Bitcoin. And no, to answer your question, Anna, BTC Pay doesn't do that. But the Feminist Coalition has been going through, how should we say, grassroots and kind of local trading circles to liquidate and then get the Naira that they need to distribute to protesters. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. It is. And I I think that that's one of the cooler aspects about all this is that's kind of people's first question is like, okay, well, they have Bitcoin, but like, are there providers accepting Bitcoin? Are the, like the producers accept? I mean, certainly the hospitals aren't accepting Bitcoin for the medical care. And that kind of gets to the core of Bitcoin's ethos, right? Like in the early days, the first people trading Bitcoin were people going to meetups. The first exchanges were not exchanges as we understand them, but literally chat rooms where people would be posting prices and offers and bids and all that kind of stuff. And that channel still, still stays the most censorship resistant, right? Exactly, for sure. And that's really what you want to be seeing, especially with the protest groups like the Feminist Coalition. They don't want to be interacting with more middlemen than they have to. So if you can reduce it down to a chat room with a couple of local traders, people you know you can trust because they're people you know, they're in your neighborhood, they're on your street, you've met them at meetups or someone in your group has introduced them to you, you can vet them, right? So there's not as much risk, especially. And had the Feminist Coalition been using Bitcoin before this happened, or is this really come out of the need, this use case? Good question, Danny, and that was one of my first ones for them. My source told me that a lot of the people in the Feminist Coalition work in tech, whether they be developers or things like that. So they always knew about Bitcoin, but they had never, the coalition had never used it specifically, right? Or had never really gone out of their way to use it. 
So per your point, it really kind of was a back against the wall driven to it out of necessity more than anything else. That being said, you know, Bitcoin, it's been used in Nigeria in the ways that you would expect, censorship resistant ways. As one of my sources say, it's not very popular, but it is a tool by more tech savvy users. Like one of our colleagues, uh, Alyssa, had a really good article on how a Nigerian man has been using it as a bank account so that he can't get shaken down by police for cash when they come and search his home, things like that. So it's interesting that even some of the tech people that weren't like crypto fans before, they can discover Bitcoin this way. Like just a little more than a month ago, we wrote about another very similar initiative in Belarus where there is a nonprofit foundation that is gathering funds for people who lost their jobs because they were protesting the current political regime. And they also use Bitcoin. They are all tech people who are fundraising. But the founder is like, yeah, I heard about Bitcoin before. I wasn't that enthusiastic about that. But then when all the traditional ways to send people money from abroad were shut down or like closely monitored by the state, I realized that Bitcoin can help here. Now they're sending like really big amounts of money to the victims of this political situation. So that's, you know, that's really interesting, you know, like Bitcoin is global and the police brutality is global too, right? Even though it takes different forms. And then like you see that people in such different countries are using Bitcoin as censorship resistant money to help people that were hurt by their own state, by their own government. Yeah. And I think it's funny, um, quick side note here for any of our listeners who haven't read it yet. Anna has some great stories on Bitcoin as a censorship resistant form of fundraising in Belarus. Highly recommend you check those out. Kind of just hitting on your points there, Anna, I think it's very interesting. Kind of the ways that people are awakened to Bitcoin. You mentioned people in tech, you know, never using Bitcoin, never paying attention to it until they finally need to and they kind of see the potential for this technology. I just always get a kick out of the kind of, uh, how should we call it, the utility discovery phase of people around the world, because you have stories out of Belarus and Venezuela and Iran and Nigeria about really the core use case for Bitcoin as a censorship resistant form of money and a uh, alternative monetary system coming to the fore. And then in the United States, you get Michael Saylor buying up like 1% of the Bitcoin supply and it's all moon math. Not really much more of an insight there, but it's really fascinating to me to see Bitcoin's narratives work out in different parts of the globe depending on the context. And this is the kind of stuff that I love to see with your Belarus coverage and the Nigeria story as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really inspiring to see this, this use case when people can help each other, you know, with no borders, nothing to stop them. Thank you for covering this amazing story. We should follow this further and see how guys in Nigeria keep on with this initiative. A lot of exciting things there to come, I think. Thanks for joining us today, Colin. And for our listeners, we will be linking the articles in question on the coindesk.com website. Please check them out. Keep an eye on what's going on. And on a totally different way of talking about censorship, control, crypto, and decentralization, in another part of the world, China's central bank is moving forward with the digital yuan project. And it has just tested the project on retail users. In the city of Shenzhen, the People's Bank of China launched a lottery earlier this month and gave away 20 million of the digital yuan 
which is worth around $1.5 million to people in Shenzhen. 2 million people reportedly applied for 200 digital yuan, about $30. And according to a report by Reuters, people could spend these new digital coins in more than 3,000 stores from supermarkets to luxury boutiques. And Reuters talked to some of the first users and found out that they were not that thrilled about the experience. At the very least, it didn't seem more convenient than using WeChat Pay or Alipay apps that people are already using everywhere in China. So that's a really interesting experiment. I wish I could try it out. Like, would you guys like to use some free giveaway digital yuans? I would certainly take the money, but I'm not really surprised by what you pointed out there, that the users weren't exactly wowed by the new service because China already has so much of that digital payment structure in place. To me, it almost feels like the 200 digital yuan, you know, it's a sign-up bonus. You download Uber you get a a $30 discount on your first order. And so that's kind of what I feel like is happening here. This is just another one of the services. It's true that the backend infrastructure and what's actually moving around on top of the system or behind the scenes is different. But if you're just a consumer, you don't really need to think about that. But I also think that it's probably a good thing for the People's Bank of China that people are having this reaction because it shows that it will be easily integrated into normal life. If they're able to to use it just as they're able to use Alipay and WeChat, then it's going to appear as a very usable alternative. And given how much power the government has over everything there, if the government so desired to make the digital yuan platform mandatory, I'm sure that they could implement that pretty easily. Well, that's been the speculation, hasn't it? Is that this is another tool to surveil, you know, citizens and how they're and their spending habits, how they're using their funds, whether or not they're buying things that are supposed to be, potentially even censoring certain transactions. Financial censorship, of course, is something that's already going on. The question is whether a digital one would make it easier for a government to do that or make it more difficult. My sense is, given the way we've seen this rolled out so far, is it would be somewhat easier. I don't think that financial censorship is any issue right now. For the Chinese government, they already can do that, I guess. But the more interesting part of digital yuan is whether it will become a global project and will become available in other countries. Imagine you could buy some digital yuans one day. Like, would you do that? Would you use them? That's what's interesting. This actually kind of ties into a report by the International Monetary Fund that published on Monday, i.e. our third story for today. There are pros and cons to letting users in other countries transact with your central bank digital currency. What are the cons, though? Well, you kind of run the risk of losing some control, some level of control, if you have other countries that are also essentially using your central bank digital currency as the primary unit of account. You know, it has monetary policy implications. A central bank wants to be able to, I'm trying to find a different word than control, but I think the word is control control their economies to some degree, right? They want to make sure that inflation is within whatever their expected targets are. They want to make sure that, you know, people are spending at the levels that they want them to spend. So when you have a currency that's, you know, being widely used outside of your country, if it's like 
the dollar, then, you know, the Fed has concerned about that. It's a consideration for your monetary policy. So it's something that other central banks, such as the Bank of China, you know, something that they might also have to look at. The IMF has, with this new paper, added a little bit more to the central bankers' ongoing digital currency debate. But depending on who you are, you might actually think that they don't really say much at all. There are a couple interesting points in there. They, you know, they say that CBDC may have benefits for monetary policy, as you alluded to, Nick, uh, especially, of course, when it comes to digitalization. But uh, CBDC is not some one-size-fits-all magic economic pill. And I, honestly, I don't think anyone really ever thought it was. But the paper does raise some key considerations for CBDC, not least of which is the fact that countries will need to think about how a CBDC and how a digital currency would work with their existing currency treaties and their currency partnerships with other countries around the world. And so right there, you have that tie-in to other countries potentially using your CBDC, even if they're outside of your borders. But my favorite part of the paper was really just one paragraph of this 50-page report where the researchers at the IMF are discussing almost like this idea of a central bank bankification of the stablecoin issuing, quote unquote, big techs, <coughs> Libra, Facebook, <coughs> Facebook, sorry, I have a cough. As the IMF sees it, big tech stablecoin projects might start out pegged to fiat reserves, but over time, they actually might cut ties to those fiats and become something of a currency themselves in this strange alternate monetary universe. Credible rules and principles would lend to stablecoins their value instead of the assurances of the state. So I guess in this sense, the big techs, Libra, these big global corporations that are seeking to, or might in the future seek to issue their own stablecoins, would become something of a central bank themselves. So what do you guys think of that? Like, is this something that we really should be concerned about? Is this in the realm of possibility? And what do you think that would mean for the future of money to have a big tech become so powerful and have so much credibility and clout that they could have their own unbacked currency that people are really using to transact value? I mean, I think it's a refrain we've heard for more than a year now, right? As soon as Facebook announced that they were working on the Libra project, central bankers, financial policymakers, finance ministers worldwide kind of raised alarm. You know, they were saying Libra is going to try and destabilize, you know, national economies or that big tech firms are coming for your money. You know, what's really interesting is that the IMF, the IMF published a report on central bank digital currencies, at least in part as a response to, you know, this one project that Facebook announced in June 2019 that not only hasn't launched, that's been delayed multiple times. Is it going to launch anytime soon? No idea. Is it even like still being worked on? It looks like it. You know, we've got these announcements every couple months of a new executive being added to the association or a new member being added to the group. We don't know if there's a deadline right now or a timeline rather. We don't know if anything's being built. You know, the really interesting part about this IMF thing is they definitely see the concern as real. And in that sense, Facebook's kind of moved the needle on, you know, digital currencies and central bank digital currencies quite a lot just from that one announcement. I think the Facebook case demonstrated quite clearly that big tech will not be allowed to run their digital currencies. Like if you're that big, no way the governments around the world will allow you to become the central bank beyond 
state borders. So I don't know. It it it, it sounds like this is, if not the end of the story, but I'm not even sure that the central banks view such possible private digital currencies as Libra as as a threat yet, because they have very effective ways to stop it. What about other stable coins, though? They are not from the big tech, even Tether, who is a single central player on this field, like maybe still the biggest one. Doesn't sound like they were a big topic of that report, were they? They really weren't. And I don't think that the central bankers are even thinking so much about projects like Tether because Tether is very focused on the cryptocurrency community. And so its effectiveness and its reach is really limited in that respect. When you, but when you have something like a global stable coin, which is how these policy wonks are always referring to Libra, it's really the associations with Facebook and the technological and social clout that a player like Facebook already has that would allow a project like that to cross the bridge between the cryptocurrency community and just the population at large that gives these central bankers the heebie-jeebies. I've never once seen a central banker for all of this talk about stablecoins ever mention Tether. Yeah, I mean, I think what it is is Facebook's size. Facebook reported that it had 2.7 billion monthly active users in the second quarter of 2020. The largest stablecoin is Tether. I think there's something like 10 billion USDTs issued right now. But it's not, you know, one Tether per user. It's hundreds, thousands, you know, some rich lists even have millions. So it's definitely, you know, a question of scale here. Facebook is concerning for central banks because there's just so many people who use it, and which makes it easy if Facebook were to issue its own digital currency or if Libra were to be rolled out to every Facebook user, it'd be easy for there to be some kind of critical level of mass adoption. I think that's the assumption. Whether that's true or not, it's a question. Uh, obviously, you know, messenger payments, which I think David Marcus, who oversaw Libra for a while, also headed up. That didn't really go anywhere anytime quickly, but that was also a couple of years ago. And they've really been focusing on their online marketplaces in the years since. So there's definitely a valid argument to the idea that issuing Libra and rolling out Libra would help onboard it to a vast number of users very quickly in a way that no crypto has been able to do yet, really. Bitcoin's maybe the closest, and I don't think it's quite at that level beyond just you know people being aware it exists. These big players are also the easiest to stop because they are so big, they're so visible, and they are so prone to all the regulations and limitations that the state actors can impose on them. I don't know if it's even the story anymore. Like Libra were not was not allowed to launch. Like Telegram's Ton, if anyone still remembers that, wasn't allowed to launch, but a totally different story. Isn't the real story flying? Above the radar of the global regulators, like do, do they really see the, the real story happening in crypto and in stable coins and with all this decentralized finance going on now? Like, are they even paying attention to something that's threatening them for real? Or are they like, you know, the fighting the war that's already over? Well, I think it depends on, you know, how are you looking at what the actual threat is, right? I don't think central bankers are looking at traditional cryptocurrencies as a major threat right now. You know, the IMF report, like we're talking about, it really came about, it would appear as a result of Libra. But they're talking about central bank digital currencies. You know, it kind of seems like the real story here is just how quickly 
discussion around central bank digital currencies accelerated as a result of Libra being a thing. There was a panel on Monday where Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell spoke, Bank of International Settlements General Manager Augustine Carson spoke. They're basically talking about central bank digital currencies and saying, well, we're looking at this, we're definitely considering it. They didn't say anything new, to be fair. But just the fact that, you know, there was a panel, there was a number of panels yesterday that were just kind of talking about crypto and central bank digital currencies is, to my view, kind of amazing, kind of ridiculous. Would have been very unexpected, you know, even just a year ago. Amazing or ridiculous. (laughs) I think we might be giving Facebook Libra too much credit, though. I think there is something to the argument that Libra gave the central bank community a reason to look more seriously at CBDC. But I think that it's since evolved because, and as you've said, it's so easy for central banks and their governments to regulate and to stop a project like Libra simply because of its size. The conversation around CBDC has really morphed into this consideration more generally about our digitalized world. It's not like our shift to internet commerce, e-commerce has happened this week or this year. It's been happening for years and it's been accelerating. It's going to keep accelerating. But now the central bankers are thinking more carefully about as we're moving into this new world, how are we going to be retrofitting our own payment systems? I don't think that any central bank will ultimately make a decision on issuing a CBDC or not because of Libra. It will ultimately be because of that more macro shift to a digital world, Libra be damned, really. Or all these central banks just keep issuing reports after reports after reports and China issuing digital yuan. Yeah, China is Libra, essentially. All the central bankers know it. In other headlines, Vincent has slapped a $60 million fine on the operator of a Bitcoin mixer alleging that he processed millions and millions of dollars in transactions for various entities without abiding by Bank Secrecy Act reporting or data recording requirements, including some pretty blatantly criminal enterprises. A group of Russian GRU officers have been indicted on charges that they use crypto to facilitate some criminal and state activity, including operating the Not Pet Yet ransomware, where Victims could pay Bitcoin, but would not receive decryption keys. Anna, can you confirm or deny that you are a fancy bear? Well, I'm fancy, but not a bear. Can, can I be some other animal, please? That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network and released on the new Coindesk Reports podcast feed. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to seven new shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Nick Day, Anna Batakova, and Danny Nelson, with editing and announcing by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced by Adam B. Levine, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at And stay tuned for Money Reimagined tomorrow on Friday.